This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Here's an ongoing story. Uh, the Waterfront Trust. Now, there, there have been calls in a number of different circles right now uh, for more transparency with the Waterfront Trust. Uh, even City Council, of course, will be entertaining a motion uh, to try to get some access to information about what's going on. Uh, there seems to be a problem with this. Uh, Councilor Jason Farr, who sits on the Waterfront Trust board, uh, has uh, said that, sure, they'll release this, uh, but there's some problems with this, and, well, he wants the whole thing published. The Spectator's got released a Freedom of Information request. Uh, the Bay Observer has been trying to get information. We have been trying to get information. What's going on? Well, Donna Skelly is the counselor who is uh, putting the motion forward for more transparency about the Waterfront Trust. She, of course, the counselor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us her perspective on this. Good morning, Donna. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Bill? Good. Listen, it uh, is easier to get Pentagon secrets than it seems to be to get stuff about the Waterfront Trust. What's going on here? I don't know. I was contacted yesterday by the Spectator reporter who published an article today talking about um, asking my my comment, uh, asking for a comment on the fact that they've been attempting to get minutes for the past five weeks, 10 requests over five weeks, and they're unable to access board minutes. And I understand that they're not the only media outlet who've requested those minutes. Uh, from what she has relayed to me, those minutes are contained within a binder at the Waterfront Trust office. Why they're not digital, I'm not sure. Uh, I think they should be made available to the media and to the general public. I'm not sure why they aren't being released, but it is it is concerning. In a binder. In a binder in 2017. What do we do? Is this is that 70s show here? What do you mean? What they they don't they don't even use digital technology? Is that what you're telling us? Well, I'm just relaying what uh, this specific reporter had mentioned to me, um, keeping. Uh, minutes in a binder in 2017 is is unusual. Uh, it's not uh, illegal. I, I believe that they should be perhaps digitized at this point. But regardless, if they're in a binder and these requests were made over the course of five weeks, I would hope that someone would have attended that office over the course of the past five weeks, being that it is the busiest season you would expect at a waterfront, um, yet they have not been made available. Yeah, I, I read uh, Natalie's column, uh, a piece rather, Natalie Patton, of course, from The Spectator, who wrote the piece uh, that appears in today's edition. And uh, the rationale, as, as I read the story, is that, uh, well, there's a lot of people on holidays at the Waterfront Trust, so uh, they can't really get the binder to them. Um, <laughs> if it's on somebody's desk or in somebody's desk, what are you telling me? You can't access it? Is that what the, the, the point is here? It, it just seems that, so, that, that we are getting the lamest of excuses here. Uh, and all people are asking for is information, and instead we're getting a song and dance. I mean, Councillor Farr is saying here they're a very small segment of folks intent on distorting facts. We're not distorting facts, Councillor. We want the facts. I agree. We don't know what the facts are because we don't have access to the information that's been requested. We have been provided financial statements, but in my opinion, uh, the financial statements really don't include enough detail to address questions that are being raised at council and in the general public. And let's face it, this is our money and this is our waterfront. And we have a right to know where this money has been spent, why it's been spent the way it has, who is being paid, how much they're being paid, what plans are in process. 
we need to know this. We have a right to know this. The general, this is, this is land that is owned by residents of the city of Hamilton. They own all of the money that has gone into, it's their money that has gone into fund the Waterfront Trust. We should be given access to information, and I'm not sure why it isn't being provided. Well, and, and the explanation by Councillor Farr that, uh, that we're distorting facts here, the, the, we in the media that are trying to seek some information here, I think is, is ludicrous, quite frankly. Uh, because we're trying to get information about this stuff here. And uh, and one of the questions I've got, and I've raised this on with you, and I've raised this on the program a number of different times right now, is given some of the questions about uh, the business practices of the Waterfront Trust, why why were they automatically brought in as a partner for the Pier 7 and 8 development? I mean, where's, where's the business case to show that, yeah, these guys have got their act together? Because what we seem to know so far seems to indicate quite the contrary. Which is the reason why I raised the issue and put forward the motion at the last council meeting. When the board, the trust came forward asking for approval to uh, reorganize the board itself, to restructure the board, and requesting expanded authority, autonomy, if you will, over the future planning direction control over the waterfront, publicly owned lands, I'm that that was simply a request that couldn't go unchallenged. We need more information, as you just pointed out. It has a history of, let's say, not being the most successful in some of its its um, business enterprises. I don't understand why the uh, cafe is not making more money than it is. It's breaking even now. But when you are the only exclusive um, establishment on a waterfront, you, I would expect that you would be making more money than that. And if not, where is the business case? Where is the argument that the same group should be given control over our waterfront? Let's see where it stands. And I had initially asked for financial statements going back five years, but I really think it's time we look at the Waterfront Trust from its inception and understand how we arrived at where we are today. I know um, that other... Residents have raised these concerns before and have not been uh, given an, um, any opportunity to see it followed through. Well, Gary Santucci from Gary the Pearl has, Company tried yeah. that back in 2012, and I, I had Gary on the program, uh, well, the day before he went there and I guess the day after, uh, and, and he was he was actually, he was almost verbally attacked by certain members of council for having the audacity to even ask questions of this, and he asked for a forensic audit, and of course they didn't get that. Uh, council uh, passed a motion unanimously uh, giving a thumbs up to, to the Waterfront Trust. And based on what? I mean, there's, there are some questions that need to be answered here. And, and perhaps, as I said, perhaps it is time to, to really go back and look at, at what has transpired since its inception. I've only asked for records for the past five years, but it needs to go back to, to uh, the day that the trust was formed and find out, you know, why um, certain projects were undertaken. Let's follow uh, how much money went to certain projects, and, and let's really see so that it's transparent. If there's nothing there, then it, it, it completely quashes any sort of um, perception that there is business that, that is going on behind closed doors. If nothing has happened, then, then open your books, then, then share with, with us the minutes of the meetings, then let's have a really open, honest discussion about what has happened. And I think that that is, is really important. I think it's necessary at this point. This is a story that is not going to go away at this point. Uh, 
I, people across the city are raising um, are raising eyebrows about what is what they're reading, what they're hearing, and they are starting to ask questions and they want answers and they deserve answers. And, and not the song and dance about the fishing derbies and everything else. I mean, those are cute little stories. But look at you know the history of this place. I mean, they this the whole thing was struck. This this whole trust was struck because there was six point five million dollars given to the city by the federal government as part of a, a legal settlement. We get that. And and they did a great job building the you know the trails at either end. That's fabulous, and those are great success stories. But that you know that's give me six and a half million dollars. I I think you know I could hire some people to do a pretty good job on that too. And they did to their credit. But the money's long gone. It is. And they're pointing now to the roller rink. Well, you pay for the roller rink. You and I pay for the roller rink. We subsidize that now. We're subsidizing everything down there. And the last numbers I saw were published in the spec about a year and a half or so ago. And they said the trust is, has lost about $2.5 million over the last seven years. I'm, as a taxpayer, I'm concerned about that. I'm not presupposing, Donna, anything about anything untoward or illegal. I just want some answers. And actually, nobody is, and I certainly am not either. I just want a very open, uh, an opportunity to open the books, to have a very honest, open discussion, going right back to uh, charting the history of the uh, growth and all of the transactions at the Waterfront Trust so we can all feel comfortable that this is this has been operated efficiently, that the money has been spent wisely, that it's being run properly, that uh, th- that it is the money that we had ho- uh, directed towards the Waterfront Trust went where it was supposed to go and that we got good value for dollar. Instead of simply saying, you know, no, just trust us. We can't. It's it's not. It's our money. It's not actually our money. It is the public's money, and they have a right to know what's going on. I think what's happening is people in general are tired of being told to just be quiet and go away. They simply want to trust the people who are in charge of their money. That's all they're asking for. They're not accusing anyone of anything. They simply want to say, show me what you've done be transparent, and if everything's fine, we'll go away. You can continue. If we believe what you've done is good value for money, we may possibly uh, agree to expand your authority. But if we decide that, <clears throat> excuse me, somebody else or something else or the city staff could do a better job, then perhaps that's the route we should go. But we should have the opportunity and the right to question any dollar that has been spent that is a tax dollar. Those who are defending it, and that seems to be a shrinking number these days, uh, always try to draw the analogy between this and HSR and say, well, look, not everything in the city is going to make money. And I get that, but that's a very, very poor analogy. That's apples and oranges. Uh, Transit is an essential service to get people from A to B. This is a private partnership with land that the city owns right now, private-public partnership that's gone on. And and the example I use, which I think is a far more apt uh, description and and comparator, was HECVI, where you've got these huge assets and you, you had a board that was supposedly running it. They were losing money. Things were not going well. Council decided, all right, we're blowing this thing up. We'll take it back in-house. We're going to find somebody who can do this. And it's working out fine. It is. And it's- that may be what's going to happen here. But you can't do that in the absence of any information. And these guys here just don't seem to want to cooperate. No, and, and, and it goes back to just let people feel comfortable that their tax dollars are being spent um, with respect, that they can trust those who are overseeing the the billions of dollars in the city of Hamilton uh, with the money, their hard-earned money. 
we pay top dollar for taxes in the city of Hamilton, and we have a responsibility to the taxpayer. And what they're asking for is not unreasonable at all. I think it is only uh, fair to show them that we are treating their hard-earned tax dollar with respect. But at this point, I can't argue that we are, because I don't know if we are, because I can't get that information. It will be coming forward. I'm going to be asking uh, in the October 4th meeting that the people who can actually answer the questions, the auditor, the bookkeeper, Warner Plessel, uh, right back, if we can, to its inception, be on hand to explain what's going on, what happened, why are the minutes not available, why isn't the, the cafe making more money, what are you spending the money on? Let us let us. Well, I, I'll throw another one at you, Donna. Maybe I'd like to know how come they're involved with with Canada Revenue Agency for the second time in a number of years right now for being in default of their taxes. I, not, I don't know that too many other city departments, if any, have ever been in that situation before. Great question. And also, why was the charitable um, um, status rescinded? Status yeah, rescinded. It was annulled. Yes, these are all issues that we haven't had an answer to. Questions that have been raised that haven't been answered, and and we deserve that. We as a taxpayer deserve that. And again, it's not an accusation of anything that's, that's um, malfeasance. I'm suggesting what, what we simply want are answers to questions and, and keep everything above board so people feel comfortable that their money is being spent wisely. Well, and let's not forget, uh, since we're doing this and, and since you're being diligent about this, and that's great to see, uh, there's a potential lawsuit uh, between Sarkoa uh, and the Waterfront Trust is right in the middle of that. What was said, what was promised to whom, and, and why uh, uh, all of a sudden are big dollars in play? I mean, because you know darn well that the city taxpayers are going to be on the hook for that legal settlement, the legal costs and everything else. So there's, there's a lot of questions here. And for the, for the trust board to simply sit there and say, just you know, back off. You guys, are, you're distorting the facts. Those are the facts. Those are the facts, and now we want some answers. Exactly. Who's paying for the legal fees to represent the trust? if it doesn't have money. Well, that, that seems to be a pretty obvious answer, don't you think? Well, does it? I, I mean, where's the money coming from? I don't know. I doubt very much there's any legal firm that's working pro bono for the Waterfront Trust. <laughs> I doubt it as well. So, again, another question that has to be answered, and, and it's an ugly, um, unfortunate um, situation on the waterfront. The Sarkoa restaurant folding and then this $15 million lawsuit Unfortunately, because it really is a bit of a stain on on us moving forward, um, that is that is something that the Waterfront Trust held uh, as as a as a badge of of success, uh, as as a key to attract more business. And now they're you know mired in a lawsuit and millions of dollars, and and it's shuttered and auctioning off its its um, its goods. It, it, it's unfortunate. I think that. The fact that they can't, you know, the latest thing is, is hearing from the media that they can't get access to board minutes is, is really disturbing. Um, the fact that they're being kept in a binder is odd. Uh, again, why aren't they electronic? Uh, that I would have assumed in 2017 that we would have had electronic copies of, of financial statements and board minutes. It's not an unusual or unreasonable res- um, request. So, again, it's just one more issue that the Waterfront Trust is going to have to address. 
Well, stay on it. Uh, obviously, council gets back to work uh, with everybody back in committee meetings and everything else just after Labor Day. And certainly, I hope this is a priority for a number of you. Donna, I let's uh, stay in touch. I appreciate the time today. It won't go away. Thank you. Donna Skelly, of course, the council for Ward 7, who's uh, going to be moving that motion. And hopefully, hopefully, that will get some results about getting some information about what's going on down there. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Remember the uh, segment we did a couple of weeks ago now with Vito Grove from uh, CBM Accountants who came in here and talked about uh, some of these proposed new federal tax guidelines that are going on here. And, of course, there are provincial guidelines as well. But they were concerned about the impact it was having on especially small business. And the government is saying, oh, no, 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 trust us, this is going to be fine. And I mentioned at the time, every time a government says trust us, uh, start running the other way. Uh, anyway, the uh, Chamber has weighed in on this now. Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, is with us here in studio. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this. Um, because uh, I, I know that the, the line you're always going to get from government, and God mm-hmm. bless government, where would we be without them, is that we're doing this to try to encourage business, entrepreneurship, yada, 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 yada. But this is also a government with a huge deficit, and they're trying to raise money. Um, and uh, sometimes that one supersedes the other one. Uh, I've looked at some of these uh, proposals. Uh, I've talked to an awful lot of small businesses that know a lot more about this than I do, and they say you have no idea the impact this is going to have on us. So give me your read on this. Well, I mean, yeah, this is a, a very difficult issue for small businesses. Uh, this is actually the, the most galvanizing issue that uh, we have seen federally in a really long time. Uh, obviously, the the province has imposed all kinds of uh, new taxes and, and other uh, regulations on top of small businesses uh, repeatedly over the last number of years. But this is the first time that uh, the federal government has united uh, both CFIB and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And when they come together, <laughs> holy hell, we've got something here. Uh, and in A fact, tsunami here. <laughs> well, in fact, we have the, there are 35 organizations from across the country that have come together to form the Coalition for Small Business Tax Fairness. And uh, we in the, the Chamber Network are a part of that. Uh, speaking of fairness, Good word. Let me ask you about that, because one of the criticisms the government has of you, not particularly you personally, but I mean the bodies uh, and those that have raised their voices against this is saying, look, at these are just a bunch of high paid, well, you know, doctors and lawyers that just, you know, we're going to tuck into this and they're not going to be able to have that condo in on the, the Riviera. This is this is small businesses to being impacted. And by the way, to their point, doctors are small business people, too. I mean, you know, you can talk about income, et cetera, but, I mean, doctor sets up shop. Uh, when they ha- they have to pay rent for the office, everything that's in there, they buy. They are, there's no government subsidy to be a doctor. They have to pay all their staff. They've got bills to pay, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's, it's a profit and loss thing, just like every other small business. Just like every other small business. This is certainly not doing anything to encourage risk-taking or entrepreneurship. Um, I know that they are trying to... to um, to close uh, uh, loopholes that a couple and uh, some very high wealth uh, individuals are, are taking advantage of. But the, the blanket approach that they're taking is, is sweeping up all kinds of uh, small businesses and doctors that are, as you point out, small businesses themselves. I mean, the issue is that these are employers. And and these employers don't have the same sort of uh, safety net as the employees that they employ do, and so these are the 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 tax advantages that uh, employers are able to take advantage of um, to be able to uh, to to dampen 
um, the uh, the impact that a, a slow economy has on on small businesses by being able to set aside uh, dividends uh, within the corporation um, and 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 be able to uh, as well save for retirement because uh, well, you yeah, know, small look businesses at- don't have they the, the business owners don't have the opportunity to buy into pensions. Yeah, there that's it. There's no pension there. I mean, that's the situation. If you're a business person like that. You forego that, and you know that going in, and so that's a sacrifice you make. Uh, you say, okay, I'm going to invest in the here and now and try to grow this business, but at the same time, when I get to 60 or 65 or whatever, and I want to retire, I got nothing. There's no security for entrepreneurs So, so, And the government's basically said, too bad, so sad. Uh, and yeah, there were a couple of people that were abusing the system because of a loophole. But you address the people that are making, you know, that are doing the the the, the dirty deeds there. You don't just blow everybody out of the water yeah. like they seem to be doing now. Well, be much more targeted because the, the other thing that we're finding is that um, the the regime that's going to have to be implemented in Ottawa uh, through CRA is going to be huge and and is probably going to cost as much as the amount of money that they're they're intending to bring in, which is a huge amount, again, to the small business owners. But uh, overall, it's just a drop in the bucket, really, in addressing uh, the issues of the, the budget. So where where did this fall apart that the government just decided to come in like this? Because right now, you, the, the small business right now is playing defense. They're trying to say, hey, wait a second, you guys don't understand what you're doing to us. And I, I, I don't think the government doesn't understand. I mean, I think they're looking at the possible revenue here and just saying, no, this is what we need to do at this stage. And there seems to be an impasse. Well, there is an impasse. Um, obviously, as I said, there, there hasn't been an, ex- uh, um, an issue like this that has exercised the entire business community across Canada uh, in uh, a number of years, probably well over a decade. So obviously, they have hit a chord. Well, do you know what comes to mind? GST. Right. Way back when, when the federal government initiated GST and basically told small businesses, then, oh, by the way, you guys are going to administer it, okay? Catch you later. Yeah. Uh, and, and that caused a, a huge tidal wave of opposition at the time, uh, simply because not just the, the tax itself, but to small business basically saying, you guys have to collect it, you have to do all the bookkeeping on it and just throw the money at us. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I mean, so th- this is this has been an issue with the provincial government, with, with uh, ministry, uh, not speaking to uh, ministry, and implementing regulations that just layer upon each other that... that Come, become what we call the the cumulative regulatory burden, and now the federal government is weighing in as well. So at a time when uh, small businesses and, and and entrepreneurs and people who are are taking risks are being hurt by um, all these regulations that are being uh, piled up on top of each other. We're talking carbon tax, and and obviously the the raise to the minimum wage is part of this. And now the federal government uh, is ignoring all of that that's happening and all the changes that are, are being faced by small business, businesses and layering this on, on top of things. So obviously, you know, we... It, it's really hard to to get blood out of a of a stone, and I think that's what they're doing here. And and what they're we're finding is that small businesses are just being hit with too much at at this point in time, and being seen as the panacea for everything else that is ailing us, for, for being able to to close budget gaps, for example. And it's it's just going to be very difficult for small businesses to be able to to exist and uh, and grow the economy as they're expected to at the same time. Yesterday on the program, uh, we had Aaron Kirsten from the Flamborough Chamber on, and uh, they'd had a town hall meeting. Uh, I guess it was the night before out in Waterdown about the impact of uh, the minimum wage and what it was going to do to small business. So it was well attended and a very very you know good meeting, democratic meeting. Right. Uh, but 
Uh, I wonder if even some of the people that showed up at that meeting, from some of the you know the well-known businesses like Weeks Hardware and everything out in Waterdown, they don't seem to even understand the impact this is going to have. That's 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 just one right. end of, aspect yeah. of it. That's just the minimum wage increase and how that's going to impact. Wait till they get a hold of what they're going to have to do from a tax standpoint after right. this. Right, and, and and so not only is it uh, going to hit them, uh, you know, the, the tax changes themselves are going to hit them in in some way, shape, or form. But then, of course, having to hire the expertise to be able to adjust to the new realities is going to cost even more. And obviously, the the government doesn't factor that in at all. Why? Because, and this may sound like a a leading question, but I mean, why is small business being targeted here? I mean, the governments, in their wisdom, I thought, over the last six or seven years, have been promoting small business and understanding that that's where the job growth is going to come from. And the recovery that we had from the recession back in 2009, 2010, is because of entrepreneurship and the growth of small business. Now it seems as if the guy, the the, the head honchos up in Ottawa and at Queen's Park have said, okay, now we're going to nail them. Now that we got them into the game, now we're going to use them as, as a revenue source. The, the governments are, are painting with too big a brush. I mean, in, in this, I think that they're trying to, they, they are trying to target uh, professionals, maybe doctors, medical professionals, other uh, service providers in, in that regard. Uh, with the minimum wage, uh, you know, people are thinking, well, of course, Tim Hortons and McDonald's and, and those employers can, can afford it. So uh, what's the issue? here. But obviously, all these small businesses are being caught up in this. So we, we have to be able to to be um, much more uh, flexible in the implementation of, of these types of policies than the governments have otherwise uh, shown their, their willingness to be. Keenan, do they not have a, a basic understanding as to how small business works? And uh, the, the, the pressures, and those, I think that's the right word, the pressures that they're under to do things on a daily basis? I don't think they do. I mean, look at how many, and I, I would like to now uh, undertake a study, how many of the uh, the MPs in the ruling party right now came from small business. Um, certainly my expectation is that within the bureaucracy, within Canada Revenue Agency, very small number, if anybody, has small business expertise. So obviously there's a there's a lack of empathy there. And so that's why, you know, the business coalitions and, and the Canadian Chamber and, and so many others are, are rising up because, you know, we represent those voices and those voices need to be hear, heard. And this is the opportunity. The, the, the window is open at this point in time and, and that's why you're hearing a cacophony across the country. But, but even for the, the, the professionals within that. They're small businesses, the people that run the mom-pop stores, the hardware stores, the restaurants, things like that. They're going to be impacted by this. That's one. Yeah. The other element to this, though, is is those professionals, lawyers, doctors that are going to be impacted. Now, I don't know if the government's attitude is, ah, oh, these guys make tons of money, so don't worry about them. They'll, they can just increase their fees. They won't let them. That's another government uh, restriction that's come into place right now. Of course, the doctor's fees, and now what they're trying to do to the legal profession and putting caps on, on, on income for things like this. And they're squeezing people out of the businesses. And you know what's going to start happening is the same thing we saw with the doctors themselves about 20 years ago. Is they're going to start saying, I can't practice here in Ontario. I can't run a business here in Ontario. I'm going to go someplace else. Yeah. There will be those impacts for sure. I mean, we're, we're seeing that in other industries and in other sectors. Um, obviously, manufacturers and, and those that rely on exports are are having um, are being pressured more and more and, and finding it more difficult to operate out of Canada with uh, higher regulations and, and labor standards and, and environmental standards and, and all of that. And, and those are all well and good. But when you are exposed um, internationally and you're going up against you know what's happening in, in the U.S., for example, 
um, it's becoming more and more difficult to compete. And and so I, I guess they they're done squeezing that, or, or you know, and, and now focusing on a different group. It's 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 just frustrating because they don't seem to understand the the kind of problems that they're causing, and because of that short sightedness, invariably what happens is all of a sudden they're going to find themselves in crisis mode a couple of years down the road, and then they're going to be scrambling to say, okay, what do we need to do to bring some of these people back? And they're going to have to ease all of this yeah. stuff. So, like, why go down that road in the first place? Why not just listen to what business has to say? I, I my, I'll answer my own question <laughs> because they have this idea. That people like the doctors, lawyers, and people like you in the chamber are self-centered, self-serving, and self-centered. In other words, you're just cutting into our profit margin. You guys can handle this, and that's not the case at all. It's not the case. It, it certainly is not the case. And w- when I look at our thousand members, and many of them have have come to us expressing um, uh, disappointment or, or angst about uh, these changes. Same same goes for the the increase in minimum wage. Um, you know, these are these are. These are the Hamiltonians that are are trying uh, every single day to grow this economy, to grow their businesses, to to be able to employ more people, um, and and they're being looked upon by the government to to do just that, and yet being squeezed out out the other side. So um, businesses, there we're not uh, high on the hog, uh, and we are struggling day day to day to to feed our families and and to allow our employers employees to feed theirs as well. It, it just shows a basic ignorance, I think, of, of how business works. Because they'll say to you know, doctors and lawyers, you know, like, I, I don't need to hear from you guys. You guys are doing well. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, they're speaking for the dental hygienists. They're speaking for the receptionists, for the uh, the nurse practitioners, uh, for the legal clerks, for the, uh, for the other people that work in law offices. You know, how many people are impacted by this? They just think of that lawyer, that law, for, law firm, that lawyer, that or that doctor. Right. Uh, there are tens to twenties in each one of these offices. Yeah. They're going to be impacted by this. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, again, there's a there's a, a lack of empathy, certainly when it comes to uh, the, the private sector and, and small business, and and yet again, expectation that the private sector is going to help us grow the economy and, and pay down the debt, um, and and flourish and employ people. So it is difficult. And you know, I, I find the other thing. So it's, it and it's not just small business. The the other issue, and we have a lot of uh, members of ours uh, that are not for profits, that are institutions as well. And I find specifically on on, for example, minimum wage. They the the government has not thought it through because there are a lot of private sector uh, public sector employers that are sweating it now trying to figure out how they're going to be able to meet uh, meet uh, ends as well um, with their budgets. You know you have hospitals and, and and schools and universities and and then not for profits social service organizations that are all doing their best to 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 do more with less as, as governments uh, continue to scale back uh, funding. And so the, the raise in the minimum wage is also impacting uh, those organizations and those organizations that primarily uh, rely upon government funding. So what we're going to be doing, is the province prepared to increase the funding that they send to the health sector, to the, to the education sector as well, to make up for the the increased burdens uh, on these institutions as a result of them. Well, I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? No, they won't. Yeah, it, it, it's it's going to be really difficult. And in in what I've what I'm finding is that these voices 
are very reluctant to speak out because it, it, it seems heartless to, to speak out against a $15 minimum wage. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a living wage employer at, at the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and we're proud to be. But the issue is too fast, too soon, and you haven't thought through all the consequences. Well, and that applies to the federal policies as well. And uh, it, I, I don't know if catastrophic is too strong a word, but, you know, if that was my life savings and uh, that my, my investment, that was my thing, and all of a sudden it's going to be negatively impacted, yeah, it is catastrophic. It is catastrophic for families, for farms, uh, for all of these. When we're talking about family businesses, the the typical family business requires contributions from all family members. And, and, and again, the changes are not reflecting reality. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we could go on for another hour about the implications of some of those things, but the family aspect of businesses is one of them, too, that they specifically targeted in this legislation where they're basically penalizing family businesses right now and saying, well, that's a tax shell that you people were using. No. Yeah. It's it's idiocy yeah. anyway. No, so we need we need your help uh, for all those listeners listeners out there. Please uh, send us uh, go to the Hamilton Chamber uh, .ca website. We have more information on the specific impacts uh, that are being proposed, and uh, please send us your your letters and and uh, so that we can forward them on uh, through the right channels up to uh, Ottawa to have your voices heard. And uh, be loud about it too. Thanks so much, Keenan. Good to see you again. Thanks, Bill. Keenan Loomis from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Skip Prokop at Lighthouse. Uh, Skip passed away on Wednesday of this week at age 73. Uh, joining us to talk about a uh, great career and a great contributor to Canadian music is our good friend Graham Rockingham, of course, uh, music critic with the Hamilton Spectator. How are you doing this morning, Graham? Hi, Bill. I'm so glad you played that song. I love that song. Uh, I, you know, remember in those days when there was the battle about, well, radio stations have to play Canadian content. Uh, songs like that jumped up and said, you know what, this is just a damn good song. And uh, Lighthouse, I, I know they got the label in some circles as whether well, Canada's answer to Chicago. Because uh, Brass Band, yeah, but this this was a band that was so unique at this time and, and, and world-class in every way. Independently, really. I mean, 1968, and, uh, and I don't think Skip, uh, perhaps Paul Hoffert did, but I don't think Skip was aware of what was going on with Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears at the time. Is He was too busy in San Francisco uh, playing with people like Michael Bloomfield and Al Cooper. He was the musical director of, uh, uh, of uh, Cass Elliot. Uh, um, so how, does, how does a guy from Hill Park end up doing that stuff for some of the icons of the time? Well, he, he learned his drumming at the Sea Cadets. Yeah. And he would work out at the arboreties, and he became a, cha- a North American champion, uh, um, a drummer, a marching band drummer. Um, and that's where he learned his, his chops. Um, from there, he, you know, at a very early age in his mid-teens, he was working like little combos uh, that would play dance halls all around Hamilton, Niagara Peninsula. I think that's where he got his, his nickname, Skip. It was over a pool game because <laughs> he kept on skipping the pool, uh, the cue ball. And the accordion player in the band called him Skip. And it just stuck for the rest of his life. But he went from there to Toronto, uh, uh, mid-teens. Uh, and, uh, and that, in the, in the, in the mid-60s was when the Yorkville scene was just starting to explode. 
Um, I No, I was just a kid, and I'd visit there the odd time. You know, we'd take the bus to Toronto, but... You know, I'm I'm told the people that were a little more aware of what they were looking at back in those days said you could walk down Yorkville there and bump into Neil Young or John mm-hmm. Kay from Steppenwolf Joni or Joni Mitchell. Mitchell. Uh, all of them were there at that time, and and that's where Skip was. And he was playing. I think it was something like the Purple Onion, and they became and he joined a band or put together a band called the Poppers. Great band. And and uh, they were kind of a house band at one of the uh, coffee houses in Yorkville. I had a um, copy of If You Call Me By Some Name. There you go. Bought, bought, I bought the 45. I uh, I have a copy of uh, Alice Island, their second full yeah. release. I remember showing it to... to, to uh, to skip. He said, where'd you get that? It was a CD, you see. And, uh, and, and he said, I, and I actually bought it in New York at a record store. And Skip said, hmm. Because <laughs> <laughs> he probably got no money out of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but, but, but the Poppers became the band in Yorkville in the late 60s. Um, I think they were uh, originally managed by Bernie Finkelstein, who mm-hmm. went on and established to North. And then they went to New York. And they were uh, uh, they were discovered by Albert Grossman, who was handling Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin. He was like the top of the uh, the echelon of uh, artist managers for that time. And they be- and the Poppers became uh, pushed by uh, uh, Grossman. Uh, they, there was a there was a, almost a franchise of psychedelic. Uh, uh, nightclubs across the U.S. called the Electric Circus, and they yeah. became the house band for that. They opened the Electric Circus in in New York, so they were a big up and coming band in the states and played Monterey pop, um, which, because of a number of reasons, became a disaster for the Poppers. Um, the Poppers broke uh, uh, broke up after uh, not having a very good show at Monterey Pop, one of the great music festivals of its time, and then. Then um, Skip became, uh, uh, he was still uh, uh, managed by Albert Grossman, who was looking for a band to replace Big Brother and the Holding Company. And he commissioned Skip with putting together a band to back up John, Janis Joplin. So Skip ended up in 19, summer of 68 in, in San Francisco as the Haight-Ashbury scene was going crazy and all those bands... Uh, like the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane were taking off, um, and he became like the house drummer of uh, the Fillmore uh, West, where uh, Bill Graham, the great uh, promoter, uh, r- which he ran. And so he sat in uh, on famous recordings like uh, uh, The Live Adventures of Michael Bloomfield and Al Cooper, mm-hmm. a, a, a fantastic record. Um, and through that, he became musical director of Cass Elliot, with Cass Elliot when she went solo. He, I remember him telling me they did six weeks in Las Vegas. It was like the first time a rock star had ever played Las Vegas. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, Paul Hofford, who he had met in New York, Paul was originally from Brooklyn, I think, and, and, and was had settled in Toronto, had been coming to Skip saying, we should put together a rock orchestra. So, and And... Uh, Skip got tired of waiting for uh, uh, Janis Joplin uh, uh, to accept him and ended up uh, uh, saying, to heck with that, going back to Toronto, 
teaming up with Paul Hoffer, the keyboard player, uh, with Lighthouse, and they put together this 13-piece rock orchestra, largely with with uh, uh, young musicians from the Toronto uh, Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, uh, I remember Skip telling me I, he they had no idea how to amplify these instruments. He said so he was ready to drill holes in these. These twenty thousand dollar channels <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and attach pickups to them, and uh, uh, and uh, that was of course not a good idea. <laughs> but he had no idea of the value of these uh, these these orchestral instruments, and and they went on and created so many great songs. Uh, uh, he was he was arguably. Uh, the biggest rock star this city's ever produced. You know, uh, well, without a doubt. I, I got a quick lighthouse story for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, first ever Winter Carnival we had at South Mount Secondary, uh, and it was uh, just around the time South or, uh, Sherwood was born. So we thought, let's collaborate. We're going to put them together. And you know, as a Barton High School guy, you you relate to this. I was at the Hill Park Winter Carnival when they uh, yeah. played. So so <laughs> for our first big Winter Carnival, the the culmination was supposed to be Saturday night at South Mount, and we were going to get the Amboy Dukes. Oh, yeah, I remember that. All right. And Ted Nugent. Yeah, and, and you know, that, of course, this ticket sold out in no time. Mm-hmm. Saturday night, everybody's there. The, the cafeteria's jammed to the gunnels. The auditorium's jammed to the gunnels. I, they, I remember the posters. They don't show. They mm. didn't show. As a matter of fact, we found out later on, they never even went across the border. So mm. everybody goes home disappointed. So the student councils get together, and they say, look, we got this money that we're going to pay these guys, and you guys have all paid your tickets. Instead of giving you refunds, we're going to do two concerts. And one of them was Copper Penny, who was a really good band from the Kitchener-Waterloo area. I the Burkholder Drive yeah. uh, Church Hall. <laughs> yeah, and that Copper was kind of cool. But the other one, they said, was Lighthouse. But they yeah. said, look, it, this was February when, they, when the Amboy Duke screwed them around. Yeah. And they said it's probably going to be April, May or so before we can actually get Lighthouse. So, well, of course, they, they exploded. Yeah, and things did, started yeah. to go really well. As you said, they were doing the Fillmore East, the Fillmore West. They'd had a couple of hit records. And we thought, oh, here we go again. And, and Skip and the guy said, no, no, we, high school game. We said we are going to be there. We'll be there. And it was a, a bigger crowd than we would have had for the Amboy Dukes. And what a show they put on. They were great. They, they could have just walked in there and said, yeah, it's a high school thing. Let's go. But, I mean, Bob McBride and Skip and, and Paul and everybody, it was just one of the most incredible experiences. Yeah, and I, I saw them at Hill Park, another winter carnival. I saw them at the... In in uh, Fort Lauderdale, they uh, headlined a show uh, in Pirates World or Pirates World. That's what it was uh, in '71, and, uh, and and of course there was a show in at the Palace Theater when it, yeah. where the crowd almost uh, 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 brought down the balcony. I can remember shaking, <laughs> talking to Skip afterwards. He said he, you could see the balcony of the Palace Theater going up and down with people <laughs> stomping. But yeah, they, this band. Lighthouse pl- ended up playing um, Isle of Wight the year Bob Dylan played. They uh, they sold out Carnegie Hall and made that great live album there. That, oh, what a great like, album that was! Yeah, and uh, they were big they, in the Far East too. They, they they were they had pockets and and yes, unfortunately in the U.S. they never uh, got out of the shadow of Chicago and blood, sweat, and tears. But I thought you know the songwriting and and. And the members and the musicianship, uh, Howard Shore, Howard Shore, who is how many Academy Awards he is, uh, has he won for doing the uh, the soundtracks? Mm-hmm. Of, uh, but he was the flute player for Lighthouse, and uh, and I remember when he would always get to sing one song. It was called "In You and Me," and uh, and he played flute, and he had hair down to his. 
down to his knees. It <laughs> he looked like cousin It from uh, from Adam's family. But no, it's a uh, it's it's a big loss, um, and uh, there's a lot of people in Hamilton of a certain age, Bill, our age, uh, that uh, will be thinking about all those great times uh, we had seeing Lighthouse. But it was uh, it's a typical 70s. Hamilton slash Canadian thing, though, isn't it? Really, Graham. Because here we are talking about, yeah, I saw those guys at, at South Mount or at Hill Park mm-hmm. or doing high school gigs. And at the same time, they're getting records played all over the world. They're doing European tours. They're doing Far Eastern tours. Uh, their albums are selling great, and, but they still never lost track of where they came from. And they never never turned their back on, on where their roots were. Well, I remember high schools paid pretty good money then. I remember sure. Barton, we were talking about... We're talking about Chilliwack, and oh, yeah. uh, and and they were asking three thousand bucks to play our dance, and we just decided now it's a little bit too much. So that was a lot of money back then. Sure, we ended up getting Mash McCann instead. So another uh, great band from Montreal, yeah. yeah. And uh, and when their hit was happening, so it was a yeah, it was a heady day. Uh, it's funny, a lot of it was because of CanCon, and that's another thing that people should be aware about. Skip, skip. Uh, in in 1970, he was like in 71. He was one of the best known musicians in the country, and he had this success in the U.S. He actually appeared before Parliament, uh, uh, urging the CanCon regulations that we now have, which. I'm sure radio stations still hate them, but that's what got bands, the, the requirement um, uh, that Pierre Junot, uh, the minister under Pierre Trudeau, uh, brought in requiring 25 or 30 or 35 percent. Uh, it was 33, uh, I think, at first. Back yeah. then, yeah, uh, Canadian content. And that's why uh, bands like Lighthouse and, yes, Crowbar, another great uh, yep. Hamilton band, were able to flourish. And uh, and he went before Parliament uh, 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 very passionately insisting that they, that this be brought in. And, and, so, and I know some people have criticized the legislation, and a lot of the us in the business right, that, that had some problems with it. But these guys, bands like, like Crowbar and Lighthouse and, and, and King Biscuit Boy and some of the other great mm-hmm. ones that we've talked about, uh, we're doing quite well and very popular, but they just could not get radio airplay because right. the radio stations at the time were very, very much influenced by what happened in Los Angeles and New York. Right. And it was top 40 radio. Mm-hmm. These, they said, these are the 40 songs you're going to play, nothing else. And, 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 and boy, if we want to emulate that success, we have to do that too. And it wasn't just radio. I mean, you couldn't get a record made up here either. Uh, it, 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 it was very difficult to do. You had to go down there, um, and unless you had, it was one of those um, Cash Way Two situations. They wouldn't record you up here unless you were a star in the states. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but so you had to. Yeah, that, that was unfortunate. But that, I mean, uh, I think the first record the Guess Who did up here was for sponsored by Coca Cola. Remember, half of it was the Guess Who, the other side was the Five Man Alarm. Well, they were called the Staccatos back then. Staccatos, that's right. And uh, and of course, then they both went down to L.A. and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But you know, you look at the guys that are going around now, and the Arkells and Monster Truck and everybody else. They they owe a debt to people like Skip Prokop for being a pioneer, not just musically, but for fighting for the industry at that time. I think they're aware too. Um, yeah, the uh, young people are very aware of our uh, music history, uh, and 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 that. I mean, if you're not, you're not going to make it. You have to be aware of what's come before you. You have to draw from that experience. You have to draw from the uh, musicality. 
uh, of, of the people that came before. And so I, 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 I did get off, I just got off the phone. I was talking to uh, Danny Clancy, the uh, longtime lead singer of uh, Lighthouse. He replaced Bob McBride. Yep. And he's been uh, uh, at the helm of Lighthouse for 25 years. And uh, they're still making funeral arrangements. I, uh, if we get them, I hope to get them into the paper. Um, so, and whether he spent his last years, I know he was in the London, he lived in Aylmer though, didn't he? Aylmer, uh, with his, uh, wife, Tracy, um, his son, also a very great musician, a very talented musician in many ways, uh, had a studio in Brantford. And when Skip could no longer play drums and he hasn't played drums with Lighthouse for the last couple of years, Jamie, his son took over, uh, which, uh, you know they had a very close relationship too and and it was very it was very uh, good for the band that JB was able to uh to sit in his dad's spot on that uh and play that way it's funny uh, in the last couple of weeks and especially since we found out about this earlier this week too uh, I've talked to a lot of my old radio buddies from down that way. That mm-hmm. I, I was not aware he kind of moved into the radio biz after that when he didn't play yeah. anymore, radio sales and stuff like that, but just kind of hanging around that, that industry, that part of it anyway. Yeah. He always uh, uh, never forgot Hamilton, too. He's a frequent visitor here. He had f- good friends here. Uh, I talked to uh, uh, Bob Johnson, who a lot of people may know as jo- Georgie Fab, who was a, a well-known producer, songwriter in the 70s. Um, and a good friend of Skip's. Uh, Skip was a frequent, a frequent visitor to his uh, home studio in the East uh, uh, East Mountain, and uh, they they collaborated on many many songs together, and uh, uh, some of them still haven't been uh, recorded. And uh, so, so yeah, it's a sad day for uh, for rock and roll. Sad day for uh, people who love. Uh, rock and roll in Hamilton. In For those who uh, want to get a taste of it, maybe you weren't around back in those days, like like Graham and I were. Uh, thank God for YouTube and places like that, because uh, it's it's hard to find music these days. But go on there, YouTube, check out. Well, the one we played, "One Fine Morning," I think is one of that the, was our first hit. That was yeah, great what an incredible song that was. Uh, "Pretty Lady," Skip, of course, himself, and and so many other great ones. Eighteen forty nine. Eighteen forty nine was my favorite. Was it really? Yeah. And yeah. on and on it goes. I mean, there's. Uh, well, I, I just check it out on YouTube. There's a whole lift, a raft of things like that too, and and a lot of the stuff. Of course, this was their music. They 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 produced this stuff. They wrote this stuff, uh, and we. I know we're talking about Skip today too, but kudos to Bob McBride, who of course passed away a number of years ago. But uh, one of the great voices of of that time as well. Uh, and there was just uh, a band that kind of made you proud back in the days when there wasn't a whole lot going on with Canadian music on 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 a national level like that or an international level to think, hey. You know, those guys just played our high school a couple of weeks ago, and now they're playing Tokyo. <laughs> now they're playing Carnegie Hall. That that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, thanks for spending some time. I know we wanted to talk about the ticket scam, but we'll do that another time, too. Yeah, that thing's going to go on for a while. Uh, and no time yeah. soon. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how Bruce responds to this, because he was one of the first guys to actually stand up to the industry and say you can't let this stuff happen. But I guess this I is, this is he, Broadway. I don't think he can respond. Uh, I mean, it's it's it's... Uh, it's already happened now. But. Yeah. Anyways, uh, a pleasure, uh, even at this uh, sad time. You're going to be writing about it for what, tomorrow's column? I'm I'm searching photos right now. Super stuff. We look forward in the spec tomorrow then. Thanks so much, Graham. Great talking Thank with you, you again. Bye. Graham Rockingham, of course, uh, music critic for the spec, uh, talking about the life and times of the great Skip Prokop, who passed away earlier this week. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.